I'm your host, David Nage. This is Baselayer, where institutional investors come to learn about crypto. The views, information, or opinions expressed during the Baselayer podcast series are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of ARCA, where David Nage is a principal. ARCA is not responsible and does not verify for accuracy of any of the information contained in the podcast series available for listening. The primary purpose of this podcast series is to educate and inform. The podcast series does not constitute financial advice or other professional advice or services. Please do your own research. This podcast is presented by Blockworks Group one of the best digital asset, event, and media production companies that I know of. For exclusive content and events that provide insight into digital assets, visit them at blockworksgroup.io. You won't be disappointed. This is David, and this is your new episode of Baselayer, and it's going to be a great one. I have Max Boonen, the founder of B2C2, with me today. Max has a great background. He spent a few years at Goldman Sachs, and as everyone knows on my show, uh, I've highlighted people who have transitioned from institutional traditional markets to digital assets markets. And this is going to be a great conversation about what everything that B2C2 is doing. Uh, They are a leading digital asset market maker out there. So Max, if you could um, give us a little bit of a background before B2C2, which was founded around 2015. What were you doing at Goldman and kind of when did did you have this moment of clarity or interest in digital assets to really become a founder in the space? So thank you very much, David. Um, I, I got into into crypto around late 2012, and I got into the market um, really in, in a bit of a random fashion. For the longest of times, I had been doing electronic market making um, as, a, as a sort of a hobby. Uh, I became one of the, the main market makers on one of the, the biggest uh, betting platforms at the time. One of the things that actually got me the the job, uh, the trading role at, at Goldman Sachs, uh, because you know they thought it was kind of cool that, uh, that uh, just a young student uh, was able to, you know, had made so much money on the betting market in an electronic fashion. And, um, and the thing is that when I was at Goldman uh, in around, yeah, I think it was December 2012, my flatmate who was a quant at the firm told me that, hey, you should look into this new Bitcoin thing. There seems to be something there and maybe you, you want to plug, you know, the algorithms that you have on it. And that's exactly what I did. Um, I, you know, was working weekends and and after after work uh, at the time on that on that project. And around 2014, 2015, it really started to um, to kind of take off. It um, it seemed clear to me at the same time that there was uh, a market that was emerging for for Bitcoin, and that the market that I personally was in uh, in my day job was not really going anywhere. The the fixed income market. I was a I was an interest rate swaps trader. I had traded before that repo and and FX swaps. I I got the sense that the the bonuses were not going to be great. The the business was not doing doing so well. Uh, in for a good part because of the low level of interest rates and interest rate volatility in the market at the time. And in 2015, I decided to resign and start the company full time. I uh, I hired Flavio, our our co-founder. And you know, off we went, just two guys in a garage. Uh, we quickly became the, I think, the biggest market maker in crypto 
uh, around those times were trading on Bitfinex, Bitstamp, typically commenting something like 20% of the, of the volume on any given exchange. And we could took it from there and grew into being an OTC market maker and having a team on, uh, on three different continents. Let me ask you a philosophical question. So you've now been in this space for about four or five years, and I noticed that you're still calling it crypto. As you know our firm and you know me and you know others out there, we're really trying to move the conversation to digital assets. What do you think about that? Well, I like crypto because it's unique. Um, digital assets can mean so many things. In, in conventional finance, you've got digital options. Um, to me, digital is a little bit of a buzzword. I understand that you want to encompass assets that are not necessarily heavily dependent on cryptography. So you, you would have, you know, let's say, you know, equities that, that trade on a blockchain or something like that. Mm -hmm. You know, they're not necessarily uh, based on some interesting and novel uh, cryptography, uh, mm -hmm. although they may. And, and I think that digital asset could, you know, could really mean so many things, whereas crypto, you know, everyone knows what you're, you're talking about. But I agree that, um, you know, it might also be uh, a, limiting, uh, a limiting way to, to describe the, the perimeter here. Right. Uh, and certainly, you know, there's a case that it's much bigger than just, you know, Bitcoin, Ethereum and, and the like. Now, another thing I'm, I'm kind of curious, and you're talking about your, dare I call it, origin story, but your friend came to you, told you about this whole Bitcoin thing. You were at Goldman Sachs. I know you can't speak for the entire firm, nor will you do that. But how far reaching do you think that actually is? Because I think a lot of people have this misconception that Bitcoin and other digital assets were the tour de jour of the kind of crypto natives, the anarchists in you know, the last 10 years or so. But the more and more that we've had these conversations, the more and more we've heard from people that were at traditional hedge funds and other asset managers that started to hear about this and started to research it. Would you say that it's a fair assessment that people in traditional finance, especially at Goldman and other institutions that were in similar situations and positions as yours, really have started to understand this much better than the general public thinks they do? I think that it's been coming in waves. Uh, around 2015, a lot of people, well, 2014, 15, a lot of people left uh, banks to, to, to get into the Bitcoin market. Uh, another one who was uh, in my office was uh, Timo from Crypto Facilities, who was then purchased by, by Kraken. Mm -hmm. um, we left roughly at the same time. Um, and, I, and I think at that time it was driven by a perception that the, you know, financial markets, especially in fixed income, were not doing great. Mm -hmm. Then in 2017-15, you had a wave of people that I just think were attracted to the, the, the immense amount of money that, that people were making yeah. in crypto. I don't think that was as, as good or, or wholesome. Um, and, and now I think that, uh, you know, financial markets are doing a little bit better. Mm. Um, so it's more, it's a bit more, uh, balanced, but there's certainly a perception that for some time you would leave banking because you couldn't cut it in banking and go to crypto and, and perhaps now it's the opposite or, or, or maybe in 2017, you would leave banking because, you know, you were not good enough. Um, and, and now it's the other way around, you know, um, so I think it's, it's coming, it's come, uh, in waves. Um, I, I wouldn't be able to say where we are right now. But certainly, uh, you've seen that the quality of people 
who left banking has been a little bit unequal, unequal um, in terms of where our market, our crypto market was in terms of its maturity. Right. So let's jump into B2C2 about what this is, a leading digital asset market maker. Again, I'm using digital asset and not crypto. I'm saying that with a smile. Um, I want to hear, I want people to learn about what B2C2 is. And then I want to talk about what you are in the overall ecosystem as a liquidity provider, what that means. And then I want to talk about some of the things that you're trading um, and why it is a very specific uh, list of digital assets. So first and foremost, what is B2C2? And for people that are not familiar with some of the infrastructure pieces of the asset management trading aspects, aspects of digital assets. There's um, usually, if you're going to describe B2C2, there's two main ways to do it. One is that B2C2 is a market maker. That means that it's making a market, you know, always being willing to buy and sell uh, digital assets at a, at a certain price and, and being compensated via a spread for doing so. Um, so that's, that's a market maker. You could also call that a liquidity provider, although liquidity provider can also be used in, in other contexts. What's important about B2C2 is that we operate always as a principal. So we're not an agent, we're not an exchange. It's not like you're sending an order into some sort of order book and we, you know, we match it with other things. No, every time that you trade with us, we are the counterparty to the trade and we're not just taking your order and sending it elsewhere. And where you find that is that makes quite a big difference is that if you're the most, the highest volume uh, in the highest volume segment, in the most sophisticated segment of traders, you want to go directly to the source of liquidity um, that you that you see on Coinbase, Bitstamp, and, and other markets. So if you're gonna if you're price sensitive, it makes a lot more sense to trade directly with the market makers that also make markets on exchanges because you're gonna save at the very least the fees. You know, in practice, it's a little bit more complicated. There's already exceptions. Um, I, I refer people to my articles on Coindesk about market microstructure to get their, their head around that, uh, that question. Um, but that's basically the idea. The idea is that as a market maker, we provide liquidity to exchanges and we also provide liquidity directly to, to financial institutions. That's around, you know, three quarters of our business roughly is done with regulated financial institutions. And to them, we price them directly in a way that has to be better than what they could get on exchange. Otherwise, they would simply go to the exchanges. So that's, uh, so that's what we do day to day. And that's underpinned by a strong focus on technology because we obviously need to be fast and, uh, and, and resilient, robust, you know, 24-7 uh, uptime, as well as a focus on algorithms, because obviously uh, the people we trade with also have algorithms. And if their algorithms are better than ours, then, you know, they make money and we lose money. Um, so that's, uh, those are two of the important dimensions on which we compete. On top of that B2C2 specifically as a reputation for client service, I think we add that little bit of, uh, you know, je ne sais quoi, um, to, to, to the service that we provide that also makes people more comfortable trading with us, be mm -hmm. it from just, you know, the sort of APIs that we provide. You know, we've got fixed server, REST API, WebSockets. There, B2C2 comes as, as a package that I think is a bit more rounded than, than some others. If you're a financial institution and you trade for an exchange equities, what we want is that when you come to B2C2, it looks and feels exactly what, like what you're used to in conventional markets. So I think that distinguishes us a little bit further. And so the firm has traded 
tens of billions, that's a capital B, in digital assets to date. And so as people know, my listeners are family offices or other institutional investors. Without, obviously, I'm not asking you for a breakdown of demographics and percentages, but who are some of the types of clients that come to B2C2? Mm-hmm. Well, so tens of billions, we've traded that uh, OTC for sure, but in general, the volume that we've handled over the years is, is in the hundreds of billions because we really focus on the wholesale end of the spectrum. So if you are if you come to B2C2 and you want to trade $2 million a month, it just doesn't make any sense for us. Um, the, the cost of onboarding for us is, is quite high. We perform deep checks in terms of AML and KYC. And so for us, considering the tight spreads that we show, it just doesn't make sense unless you're trading really significant volumes. So the demographics, uh, so to speak, they're not really demographics because we've only got a handful of high net worth individual that, that trade with us. Um, just generally speaking, if you're a high net worth individual, um, you know, you're not going to trade that much. And it's going to be about, you know, education, understanding, maybe there's, you know, financial advice or research that that's important to you so that you can sort of wrap your head around the market. That's not really what we do. We prefer to leave that to some of our clients who will really handle the relationship with the person and come to us simply for the liquidity for the execution. So we got very few individuals actually trading with us. Um, most of the people, the entities we trade with are going to be, there's large brokers. And when I say large brokers, they're going to be, you know, regular regulated institutions like uh, and, and I don't, I, I, I name a lot so that I don't reveal any specific client names, but brokers you would have thought of, uh, you know, there's Robinhood, Revolut, IG Markets, eToro, Cash App, you know, all those names, like a Charles Schwab would be one. Mm-hmm. And so we've got a lot of names like that trading with us. We've also got um, funds, typically more quantitative funds that tend to, that tend to trade a lot, not so much, you know, buy and hold kind of funds. Um, so there's the, there's there's a big industry there, and also um, a bunch of asset managers. And interestingly, and maybe this is this is less you know you wouldn't expect it, but there's a lot of exchanges that trade with us, because one of the interesting features of the value chain in crypto is that we've got a very big exchanges like like Binance and and Bitstamp, and those of they have dozens of dedicated market makers all trying to compete to, to, you know, to win the volume and make money by providing liquidity. But on smaller exchanges, it's sometimes a little bit difficult. And so what people do is they can either contract uh, a market maker and have, um, you know, some sort of deal where the economics are shared, you know, maybe there's, they get better fees or something like that to incentivize them to the market maker to, to trade on an exchange that otherwise would be too small to be economical. Um, there's a, a, a many of our clients actually perform that function, so they're connected to you know dozens of smaller exchanges and providing liquidity there in a sense in return for a fee, and then they come to B2C2 for the liquidity for the execution itself. Um, but sometimes instead of you know going through that sort of intermediary, an exchange will come to us directly and take our OTC prices and actually place them under all the book to, to, to have that liquidity without B2C2 having directly to connect to the exchange. Because when we connect to an exchange, it's, um, I would say it's quite expensive because we need, it needs to be, you know, done, you know, it needs to be done perfectly in terms of the latency, in terms of the, the speed at which we're going to, we're going to, we're going to be trading and, um, and the level of, of reliability 
that we need to that we need to have you know mm -hmm. it's it's quite involved so w if it's not a big exchange and we're connected to only about 20 exchanges uh only the biggest ones you know we prefer that the exchange connect to us so that they go through one of our clients whose you know mission or whose purpose is to to do that actually All right and so let's get into what you actually trade. Uh, you provide 24-7, 365 liquidity in Bitcoin, Ethereum, Litecoin, Bitcoin Cash, Ripple, Ethereum Classic, and Zcash. Why specifically just those and not some of the others? Um, quite simply, uh, it's a question of scale. If the coin is not big enough, it, it we're not going to generate high enough volumes in order to for the for the business to make sense, you have to think that the the, the profit generated on the volume is of the order of, of a basis point, so one hundredth of one percent, or not even that, in in many cases. So you know, if if we're if we're adding a new coin and it trades only, let's say, fifty million dollars a a month, eh, you know, it's it's not that much. Um, so it doesn't necessarily make sense for us to to add it. Um, what we do now is that we regularly review the state of play and we get also a lot of feedback from our clients in order to add new coins. You know, we want to know what's the next hot coin that we do need to be to be active on, but we're not the kind of shop that will just offer, you know, 50 coins because when you do that, there's two problems. One, you need to charge more in terms of spread to justify the smaller volumes. And that's just not our, that's not our culture. Our culture is high volume, super tight spreads. That's just who we are. We don't want to just start charging people more because we can. Going back to the example of trading with high net worth individuals, if someone come, came to us and said, I want to trade half a million dollars, I'm willing to pay a 2% fee. And that's a lot of money, actually. Um, but we just prefer not to get into that segment itself. It's also a question of positioning. Um, so that's one problem, the volume. The second problem is actually um, the fact that we don't want to be exposed to the price of, of, of digital assets. One of the things that's extremely important to understand about B2C2, and I think uh, about many market makers in, in general, not all, is that they prefer to be market neutral. So when the price of Bitcoin goes up or the price of Bitcoin goes down, we don't make or lose money. We're, we endeavor at least to always be roughly flat with respect to market prices, meaning that when our clients sell to us, we quickly hedge um, in the market or against other clients that we have in the other direction. And we don't keep trades for more than a few seconds usually. That's very important um, because the experience of 2018 has shown that whatever, however profitable your business model is, if you're directly exposed to crypto prices, the, the moment that they go down 70%, you're screwed. That's just what it is. It doesn't matter how sound your business is. And so it's very important to us that we separate all performance, which is driven by technology, algo, and the quality of our client franchise from the actual uh, performance of the crypto market as a whole. And so what we do is we tend to borrow um, the, the coins that we trade so that we can always provide two-way markets without being directly exposed to, to, to the price. Or we can sell futures, which is roughly equivalent to doing that. So for instance, a coin that is difficult to borrow or you can't, uh, there's no futures, it's going to be very difficult for us to, um, to, uh, to trade it. So all about the liquidity and the counterparties, understood. And so I want to talk about a little bit more on the macro side. Uh, obviously, you're in a unique situation where you're getting inbounds from family offices, from hedge funds, from um, 
I'm curious, as you're kind of in the middle there where you're getting inbound and then you're obviously looking for those pools of liquidity, give us a sense of how 2020 has been shaping up because as it relates to Bitcoin, we've been kind of in this trading pattern of around 9,000 to 10,000. We've seen some very large investors get to be very bullish like a Paul Tudor Jones and the folks at Renaissance Technologies. Curious to hear from your perspective what you're seeing, obviously not giving away your secret sauce and the kind of the performance per se, but what are you seeing in terms of the inbound and the kind of the external kind of working within the system in terms of liquidity? What are you seeing as a very special participant in this market? Um, so in terms of the the interest or flows that we see now, um, I think one of the changes that we're going to see and that's occurring right now uh, in the past, sorry, in, in, in the next six months to a year, is that finally banks are getting into the market. But the way that they're doing it is a little bit different from what people expected that uh, maybe two years ago. Um, so back in late 2017, 2018, uh, banks like Goldman Sachs were considering what they what they wanted to do with the crypto market. Historically, they had received zero, and when I say zero, I mean nothing, zero interest from their clients uh, in terms of crypto. Now, and that was, you know, 2016, 2017. When the bubble occurred, it didn't really matter whether clients had a natural interest for crypto. Everyone wanted to get in, absolutely everyone. So they started considering it, even though their natural sort of client franchise was not, was not you know, fixated on, on crypto. Um, so, you know, early 2018, a firm like Goldman Sachs is seriously considering actually trading Bitcoin. Um, and they had, you know, not everyone at, at, at senior levels, one person in particular, uh, was not was not so keen, and then that person, um, uh, if I remember, left the firm, and that sort of gave more of a green line. But by the time we got there, the market had really come down to a to a level from the peak around twenty thousand, and so the, the, you know those projects at banks were basically shelled, and it's not been the case since then that banks have received a strong, uh, I've seen strong institutional demand to trade crypto. So I think that before we actually see the institutional clients of banks want to get into the crypto market, we need, in my opinion, not only to get to you know close to the previous all-time high, I think we actually need to surpass it because 2008 has been quite um, traumatic, I think, uh, in, in terms of uh, perception of, of crypto. So for institutions through banks, getting to the market, I think we were not quite there yet. I think we need to see higher prices first. Now, what's interesting is that with the increased globally um, in terms of regulatory scrutiny and the fact that there's now, you know, different licenses that you can get, you know, there's a big license in New York, you know, we, we B2C2, we have a regulatory license in Europe. There's other stuff in Japan. Um, that has actually increased the level of comfort of a lot of financial institutions. But the angle that they're taking now is quite different. There's a very big European bank that I won't name. What they've decided to do is to approach this from a private wealth management angle. Mm. Normally, when a bank gets into a new product, the way that it works is there's institutional demand, and that institutional demand creates a market. And later on, private wealth, uh, so high net worth individuals, can access the market. And yet further down the line, retail can access the market. Um, with crypto, 
What's happening is the opposite. It's naturally a, a very retail-driven market. And when it comes to the banks, it's through the private wealth management arms of the banks that I think we're going to see them get into the market. It is no surprise that it's the Swiss banks, the you know the regional cantonal banks that have uh, you know really been early adopters in that context because it's as is well known, Swiss banks are you know they cater to to high net worth individuals, and so you know very big banks, the likes of you know Societe Generale and Deutsche Bank in Europe, uh, potentially J.P. Morgan and others in the United States. The way that they're now thinking about this is much more. Um, private wealth rather than institutional. And I think that when there's a private wealth, uh, there's private wealth engagement, then we'll see more and more institutions want to contribute to the market. But it's a little bit the other way around than what you're you're seeing normally. And that's obviously, and that's that trend is also supported by the, the sort of rise of, of regulatory uh, scrutiny uh, mm-hmm. in the market, which I think is positive. Um, it's not like we could have gotten the banks comfortable without it. Now, I know that you know your clients very well. You have to do very deep dives into them. And again, not asking for specific details, but this is an area I'm curious about in terms of the demographic of the digital asset holder or trader. Would you say in terms of age range that it's more of this kind of millennial I guess Gen Z, not even Gen Z. Yeah, I guess Gen Z, millennial type of folks, you know, the 25 to 45 year old, or would you see that you're seeing, you know, especially high net worth in the, you know, 50 to 65 year old range? I'm just curious if you can kind of glean some insight into that. It's bifurcated. Um, I I can, I have to give a sort of dual answer uh, for this reason. If you look at the, the end demand, a lot of it is coming from younger folks. And by that, I'm, I'm you know, Robinhood, Revolut, uh, even Coinbase. Those companies are well known for having gotten millennials on board when it comes to, to trading more actively than previous generations. And I think that that seeps, you know, that end demand rolls back up through exchanges and to B2C2. To the more to the institutional liquidity providers of which there are a handful in crypto, so that's a younger demographic. Um, now, when it comes to the participants themselves, they're not so young, in the sense that you know the person managing crypto risk at uh, at a big institution, even if their user base is younger, they're going to be more experienced. They're going to be older. Um, now. That's fine. I think one of the reasons that a company like Coinbase is so valuable, and perhaps it IPOs um, in the near future, is that they've managed to onboard 20 million people, mm-hmm. the majority of which probably never traded in their life. Yeah. And then you can see that you can imagine Coinbase as a sort of big financial conglomerate now. They've managed to get so many young people in the door for crypto, but then they're going to be able to cross-sell, I don't know, mortgages for an exchange. I mean, the sky is the limit. Mm-hmm. Now, when it comes to the professionals actually involved in the crypto market, they tend to be more experienced. Yeah. Um, I'll, I'll use the example of, of be, um, sorry, Rob Catalanello, who runs our, our US business, uh, which is one of the, well, the fastest growing region at B2C2 over the, the past 12 months. We basically plucked him out of retirement. 
Oh. The guy had been the guy had been running fixed income sales and and I think global sales at Merrill Lynch and Credit Agricole before. Um, he was on the Federal Reserve FX FX Markets Committee. You know, he had he had done it. You know, his career was 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 uh, quite accomplished. Um, and we we went and got him out of retirement. He's been an incredible salesperson. He knows exactly how to sell. Uh, financial products, and that's just not always an expertise that you can get in a, in someone who's 20, 22 and uh, just fresh out of school. Yep. There is yep. a lot of, um, I mean, young younger people, and and I'm certainly not an old <laughs> an old fart, um, but younger people have that energy sometimes that compensates for things. But when it comes to institutional participation in a market, you need to have someone who's got that experience in front of you, who speaks the right language in order yep. to to make you comfortable. Makes absolute sense. This was fascinating, Max. Where can the listeners find out more about B2C2? And if they choose, how can they get involved? I think we're very easy to find online. Um, if you want to if you want to onboard, um, I think there's probably sales at B2C2.com. If you want to uh, want to work with us on a more personal level, then we're always on the lookout for, for top people. To, to hire developers, quants um, across the board. Uh, and for that, you can contact us at jobs at b2c2.com. Outstanding. This was Max Moonen, the founder of B2C2. What a enlightening and insightful conversation. Thank you, Max, for coming on. Hopefully we can catch up with you towards the end of the year and see how some of those thoughts about the market are playing out. And we'll be seeing you soon. Thank you very much, David. Speak later. Thanks for listening in to Baselayer. If you like the show and all the different guests that we've brought on, please give a like and subscribe on Apple or Spotify or wherever you do listen to the podcast. Also, if you want to have a conversation or reach out to me, you can reach me out on Twitter at David J. Nage. And let's talk there. Or also you can find me on LinkedIn. And I look forward to having great conversations with you all about digital assets.